But if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We're going to just cover the first uh, section in Acts chapter 13. We're going to cover the first 12 verses today. Um, and so if you've been following along, you will know uh, that last week in our series, we were in Acts 12, uh, because 12 comes before 13, and we're just going through the book. Uh, and we read about Peter's really pretty incredible, powerful story of his escape from prison. And if you remember that, it wasn't like uh, the church rallied up some cowboys and they pulled the side of the prison wall off like in the old westerns, and they came in with a horse and got him. It was completely orchestrated uh, and pulled off really by uh, God and his angels. And so this was as an answer to the prayers of the church in Jerusalem. You remember there was a little bit of humor in there because... Uh, they're literally in a prayer meeting, Lord, please rescue Peter from prison. And Peter knocks on the door, and the servant girl answers the door says, hey, it's Peter at the door. She forgets to open the door because she's so excited. And they're like, no way, that's crazy. And so God answered their prayer as they were praying for it, and they just couldn't even come to terms with the fact that he did. And so uh, th that was the story last week. It's a really cool, encouraging, uplifting story. Uh, but unfortunately... That story, I say unfortunately in terms of storytelling, that is a parenthesis in the book of Acts. That is a little side, uh, little relief from the flow of the where things are going uh, in Acts right now. That story in Acts 12, it's almost like a little, little joyful intermission uh, from the bigger story going on right here in Acts. So today we'll be in Acts chapter 13. We're actually going to pick up where Acts chapter 11 left off today. Uh, so if you remember chapter 11, or if you've got your Bible open there, you can flip back or scroll up, uh, and you can see that 11 gives us the origin story of the church in Antioch. Uh, and we're going to see that church again today. And it ends with this really beautiful example of a church being the hands and feet of Jesus. That's part of why I thought it would be really cool to kind of get an update of what's going on in our family of churches, because we see the church in Antioch. Uh, at the end of chapter 11, they're told that there's going to be a great famine where the church at Jerusalem is. And so this is how this new church responds. They, uh, in Acts 11, 29 and 30, it says this, The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, in our modern day and age, let's make it real. If you want to help relief... In our sister churches in Florida, you don't have to send it by the hands of two elders walking. You can do it by the hands of the internet. Uh, you can go to Kama Services, C-A-M-A -A Services, that stands for Care and Mercy Associates, so you can remember the acronym. Commaservices.org, there's a big button right on the front. You don't even have to go through our churches directly, and that will get down to those churches who are in need. So that's what the church at Antioch does. Then we get to chapter 12, and we get that parenthetical story of Peter's escape from prison. And then the very last verse of chapter 12 also adds to the story of sort of the Antiochian church's care for the Jerusalem church. Acts 12.25 says this, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name is Mark. So this is John Mark, different than the guy that wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, and so after having sort of the joy of delivering this really beautiful offering to the church at Jerusalem. And you have to imagine, uh, for sure, they were going to hear the story, right, of what happened to Peter. I mean, you would definitely tell that story. Uh, they returned to Antioch, Saul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, and they bring Barnabas' younger cousin, and, and we'll get to how we know that in a little bit, uh, a young man named John Mark. Now, if you know anything about life, 
right? And I can see that all of us in this room right now are older than five, so we know a little bit about life. And the reality of life, right, follow me here, is that everything always goes perfectly smoothly. Nothing ever takes longer than you thought it would, and everything goes great all the time, right? No, of course not, right? And, and what we see today in Acts 13 is the reality that we all live with every day in this broken-by-sin world. Nothing is ever as easy as it looks. Right? Even down to the little things. This morning I was getting oatmeal for myself, and I dropped bananas on the floor. And it's, I don't know if you've had those moments where you're like, really? Can I just get my oatmeal without it having to take 10 minutes longer than I thought because now I've got to clean up? Right? And so that's just not how life works most of the time. Most of the time, everything takes longer than you think, and if anything can go wrong, it will. Right? And so in Acts 13 and 14, what we're going to do is we're going to sort of take a journey on what's known as the first missionary journey, the first missionary adventure, really. There's going to be ups and downs along the way. It's going to be a roller coaster, and we'll see many gospel victories won through many hardships, because of the faithfulness of Barnabas, and as he's going to be now known, Paul. Uh, I, I think what we're also going to see is that, and this is really important, that if we are going to be a witness to the world, which is what Jesus calls us to in Acts 1, he says, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If we are going to be witnesses for Jesus to the ends of the earth, which is our calling as the church, it always will require personal sacrifice. It will never not require that. Jesus is calling you to radically reorient your life around him and his kingdom and his mission to make all things new. Which means you are going to have to sacrifice some of your personal, uh, maybe your finances or your time or your comfort or your preferences or all of the above. It will never happen apart from personal Sacrifice. No matter the level of involvement in activity as a Christian or in ministry, whatever that is, it will be with personal sacrifice. There will be difficulties. There will be trials. Some will even argue that life is continually difficult for the Christian. And I would agree with that because suffering is what Jesus knew. He was a man of suffering. And if we want to be with him in his glory, we must be with him in his suffering. We participate with Jesus in this world, but suffering is where we are closest to him. And some of you know that better than us, better, better than others. Uh, some people like to preach what we might call a prosperity gospel, right? Accept Jesus and everything is going to go good. There's prosperity gospel light that we will say, come to Jesus and your marriage will be great. That's a form of prosperity preaching. That's not always true. Come to Jesus and your kids will automatically be just wonderful children. Not necessarily, because they're growing up with you, and you're a sinner too. Come to Jesus, and your work life will be perfect. Maybe. That's just not always true. We've met great Christians. There are some of us in this church who love Jesus, have been faithful for years, and are going through incredibly difficult things. Accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior is not a guarantee against suffering, against calamity, against persecution, against difficulty. Whether it's disease, relational problems, financial strains, broken relationships, whatever it is, Jesus doesn't guarantee you that you will escape those things on this side of glory. Heartache will be a part of your life. 
if you follow Jesus. But is he worth it? Oh, yes. That's not even a question that's on the table. Of course. So let me just start by reading this entire chunk of Acts 13 that I just want to cover for today. We were going to do the whole chapter, but it wasn't going to work. So I want to break it up and do a couple chapters. And, and we'll just cover 13, 1 through 12 today. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray uh, specifically for us to hear the word, and then we will dig in to the text. So this is Acts chapter 13. I'm reading from the ESV. If you don't have a Bible, there's some blue ones in the chairs around you. And you can grab one of those. It'll be the same translation as I'm going to read. Um, but if you have a different one, that's fine too. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, that's Bar-Jesus, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, I pray that we would be the opposite of uh, this magician we see in the text, and that it wouldn't be darkness over us, but that your light from your word and your spirit in us would shine so that we would see who you really are and who we really are in light of that. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start back at verse one. We're just going to read a little bit at a time and wor work our way through this text. We're going to start back at verse one here and take a closer look at um, the team here who's leading the church in Antioch. It's a pretty great team. 13.1, now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Nigers, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a long friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. This is an incredible church staff. This is a racially diverse, uh, integrated group of leaders who are leading the church in Antioch. We've got Barnabas, who's a native of Cyprus. It's an island. I, was, I had this conversation yesterday with the referee that referees my daughter's soccer games. Uh, one three nothing, by the way. And... Um, we, uh, we were talking because we were talking about Manchester United, which is an English football club, which is soccer, right, over there, and they played a team from Cyprus. And I was telling you, I was like, hey, this is an opportunity to bring up Jesus, right? I said, oh, I'm a pastor, and tomorrow I'm going to be talking about a guy who is from Cyprus. And then we got into a conversation about Jesus in the church. So I just want to tell you that because, hey, anything can get you there, right? Be creative uh, in sharing the love of Jesus with people. And so... Um, 
So this is incredible. Barnabas, he's a native of Cyprus. Now there's this guy, Simeon. His other name is Niger, which is Latin for black. So he's a black guy in this church. Uh, Likely Barnabas is not uh, African descent. He is uh, more like Greek, that kind of middle uh, middle of that that part of the world um, descent. And so there's another Gentile there named Lucius, uh, who is probably also black because he was from Cyrene, which is in North Africa. Uh, So if you've heard this, phrase before that Christianity is the white man's religion, it ain't true. Because right here in the beginning, we got people from all over the place. And then there's Manaean, who essentially grew up in King Herod's household. And of course, we have Saul, who we now call Paul. And so Antioch is this amazing sort of picture of a multi-ethnic missionary sending church. That's who they are. They've got teachers teaching. They've got prophets prophesying. Right, Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, don't miss in verse 2 the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. We have to recognize if we are going to fulfill the calling of Jesus in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. If we're going to fulfill that, we have to recognize the absolute necessity of living by the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, being open to the Holy Spirit's leading, right? Look at when the commissioning from the Holy Spirit comes, while they were worshiping and fasting. Now, fasting, not a popular thing among our sort of stream of Christianity. We do fasting and we make it our, oh, I'm fasting from social media, right? Now, well, cool, you should probably just get off social media and so should I, but fasting is really about food, And that's the historic practice of both the church and Judaism before it. Fasting, what is is fasting indicating? It's indicating that you are so following what Jesus is, is calling you to do that you are setting aside the normal necessities and demands of life, particularly food, in order to concentrate for a time on what you feel like God is calling you to. Whether that be something going on internally or Maybe you are fasting for something going on as part of your church family, which is what's happening here. They are fasting, fasting and worshiping. Fasting? I just made up a word. You can do that. Right? They're fasting and worshiping. And here's a little key I want you to see here. Worship and work for the Lord always have to go together. Those two things cannot be separated out. If we try to in our life, work without worshiping. We won't know the God for whom we supposedly work, and we will trying to be doing work for him instead of coming alongside the work he is doing in the world. And then if we do nothing but worship without some kind of service, without some kind of bringing the kingdom reality into our world, we show that our worship and really our faith is dead. It's false. So worship expression of our worship for God and work always go hand in hand. So verse three, then after fasting and praying, right? So fasting and praying is the foundation for which the strategy then happens. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
Laying on of hands is a really important symbolic thing in the New Testament and even in our church. I was just part of this over the last week. I was in Roanoke, Virginia at our uh, church families conference every year. We have one and we re-elected our district superintendent who kind of helps oversee all the churches in Maryland, Delaware, and Virginia that are Alliance churches. And uh, I was part of a team that got to lay our hands on him and pray for him in this four-year term that he's about to take. And so laying on of hands is always important. It's not a magical thing that happens. We're not like uh, casting a spell on someone. That's not what it's about, but it is an important symbol for what's going on. So while the Holy Spirit does the commissioning here, right, the Holy Spirit said, hey, I want to do this, but he uses the local church and the laying on of hands to complete that commissioning. So essentially what's the church saying? Brothers, Saul and Barnabas, we are with you. We're with you. When you go, we're coming with you. We're praying for you. We're with you in spirit. You're not alone. You're not lone ranger Christians going off by yourself. This is a danger, and we don't see it as a pattern in the New Testament. So when we see people wanting to start new churches, and you ask them, where is your sending church? And they're like, oh, I didn't come from a sending church. Red flag. The church is God's chosen vehicle by which he goes and sends the gospel out into the world. That's the pattern we see in the New Testament. And Barnabas and Saul would have known that they had the full support of the church. They are commissioned by the church. This is where we get the idea of ordination from, the laying on of hands and saying, we commission you to go out. Some of you were here when I was installed as the pastor of this church, and some of you laid hands on me, and I don't take it lightly. That's how we do things. And some of you are threatening to lay hands if I don't wrap this up quicker. Just kidding. I saw that, Tom. But this is a great example for us. This is a great example, a model for how we send out missionaries. We don't just say like, all right, go out there, hope it goes well. No, we send them out knowing that we're with them. We bear their burdens. And this is how we do things in the Alliance. Uh, again, this past week, I got to talk with uh, the international worker, which is what we call missionaries in the Alliance, the international worker who's going to be coming to share with us during our missions weekend. In just a few weeks, we'll be announcing all of that with what God is doing through her and by extension through us and the other Alliance families in Japan. So I'm really excited about that weekend. Uh, if you, you go check out the events page on our church website, it's there already, so you can get those dates. And so um, th this is a really important picture of the way that God does things in this world, that he sends the gospel out. Yes, there are those who go on frontier missions, but they don't go alone. They go commissioned and sent. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, in case you didn't catch it before, the narrator of Acts, Luke, wants to remind us that they're not sent out primarily by the church. They're sent out by the Holy Spirit. But the church does the laying on of hands. They are divinely enabled. And what we see as an example from these two men is that they have this remarkable willingness to follow. From here on, they remain really open to the Spirit's movement, right? They put their sails up in whatever way the Spirit's wind blows, they go. Pun intended, right? From here on, they, they remain this way. So the question for us, are we open to the Spirit's redirection? Are you open to the Spirit leading you? 
hey, have that conversation. Hey, why don't you give that thing away? Why don't you serve this person? Are you open to the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit? Have you ever experienced the prompting of the Holy Spirit like that? Maybe you're answering no. Don't feel guilty. God is gracious. Just keep asking him and he will. Are we open to following the guidance of the Spirit? I I ask that both as individuals, right, in this church, but also I think about that as our leadership team here at our church, our elders, our advisory committee. Are we open to the leading of the Holy Spirit with the direction of our church? How many of us have ever said, oh God, I will do anything for you, and God says, all right, how about this? We go, well, anything but that. Not that, Lord. No, you can't mean that, Lord. And then we, we figure out all the ways that God couldn't have meant that and we get other people to tell us what we already want to hear, right? I know that I have for sure done that. Verse five, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John, this is John Mark now, to assist them. So the course of their first mission is pretty simple. It's a pretty simple idea. They set sail from Seleucia, which is a port city near Antioch, They go to Salamis, the port city of the island of Cyprus. It's about a 130-mile voyage. Now, I thought about putting maps on a screen, but these screens are small. You wouldn't have seen the maps anyway. I would have had to zoom in, and they don't make sense. So what I want to encourage you to do, if you have a paper Bible or any other kind of Bible, most Bibles that I know of have a map of the first missionary journey in the back somewhere. So check that out, and you can get a picture of that if that helps you. I'm a visual learner, so that really helps me. Uh, Here's what's interesting. The, The ancient world regarded Cyprus uh, in, in very much the same way we might regard the Bahamas or Hawaii, right? Some vacation spot. In fact, uh, one commentator said that it's often called the Happy Isle in the ancient world because it had a perfect climate and its resources were abundant. And so some of you were thinking, oh, well, I mean, sign me up for that kind of missionary journey, right? I'll go to the Bahamas for you, Lord. But, but here's the thing, it's also a very dark and needy place, and we're going to see that as we continue on. Luke tells us they, they bring John Mark to assist them, and, and John Mark's going to, we're going to have some trouble with John Mark in just uh, a little bit. And some scholars would say that John Mark is really the first kind of intern for ministry. Uh, if you didn't know this, we have an intern right now at our church. She's serving back in children's ministry right now. Shows up every week at 9 o'clock, mops the fellowship hall, does all kinds of amazing stuff. So tell Ashley thank you when you see her. And I hope she's like, why is everybody saying thank you to me? But ministry interns are people who are learning what it means to do ministry. And John Mark is probably the first one. Colossians 4.10 is where we learn that he is Barnabas's younger cousin. And what we know about him, John Mark, is that he evidently comes from a wealthy family in Jerusalem. He's one of the most beautiful stories of redemption you see in the New Testament. It's a really cool story, and we'll get to that. And he actually is later going to author the Gospel of Mark. And so on arrival, they have a very simple method. They travel the island from east to west. They go from Salamis to Paphos, which is a distance of roughly 90 miles. And so they... they They just employ a real simple strategy. Start with what you know. This is Paul's strategy uh, elsewhere as well. They start by preaching in the local Jewish synagogues to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. That's the pattern. Verse six, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. 
He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, just a quick note, Bar-Jesus and Elymas is the same person, just to keep that straight in your mind. So when the trio comes to the, the capital of the island, they... Uh, they run into two men, right? They encounter two men. One is the governor. That's what proconsul is. He's basically the, the Roman governor of Cyprus, Sergius Paulus. And what do we learn about this man? He's an intelligent man. He's an educated man. He's a man of great understanding. And, and evidently, he is seeking for more than the empty idolatry of his day. And so he has this personal prophet who Luke says is a false prophet, Bar-Jesus, which that name means son of the Savior. And so this man, Bar-Jesus, has all this dark influence over the proconsul, the governor. Maybe he promised to know the way of salvation. Maybe he promised different things, but Paul's message to him was totally different than anything that Bar-Jesus taught. Paul comes with the gospel of Jesus. Now, this guy is also known in the text as Elymas, which is an Arabic word, which means basically wizard, magician, sorcerer. And so there's no doubt that he is skilled and he has influence over the ruler of Cyprus. And so this is going to be our uh, major spiritual warfare in uh, this part of Acts. And I just want you to hear me say this. Spiritual warfare is a real thing. It happens today. It happened to Paul. It happened to Barnabas and John Mark in Acts 13. And it will happen to you. It might not be this kind of encounter, but spiritual warfare is a real thing that is really happening. When the gospel goes forth, this is the pattern we see in the New Testament. And this is the pattern you should expect to see. Some people will be like, man, I want this. Yes. And I think we lull ourselves into thinking everyone's going to say that. But that's not the case. I wish it was, but it's not. Some people are going to reject it. And that's what we see happening here. So Sergius Paulus is this intelligent powerful man. What we see in the story is apparently he's attracted to the word. He listens a little bit to Paul, but the false prophet, of course, sees these guys as a threat. Why? Because I don't know how else to put this. The governor is his sugar daddy, right? He's funding him. That's what we see going on, that he is, he is getting all of his wealth and his prestige from being close to the proconsul. So, Two of the major reasons why people will oppose the gospel, why you still probably oppose the gospel in your heart and in your mind, are pride and materialism. And these are two major ones in our day and age. Many people will just refuse to admit that they need a savior, even if they know it deep down in their heart. They will refuse to repent because repentance takes a certain kind of humility. They will refuse to say that salvation is through Jesus. But some of us will refuse to give up our materialistic lifestyle to follow the way of Jesus. And this is a really insidious one for us because this feels normal. We're Americans, right? Everything should be going up and to the right, including our income and our lifestyle and everything. And that's materialism. 
But the gospel confronts this. The gospel says you haven't been given more and more to keep it for yourself and increase your lifestyle. You've been given more and more so that you can be more generous, right? The old saying, don't build taller fences, build longer tables. So there is a cost to service for Jesus. Listen, Jesus will confront your idols and he will tear them down and it won't feel good. If you don't ever want to look like a fool, don't share the gospel with anybody. And you won't, at least not in that way. If you, if you never want to feel rejected and ostracized in our day and age, never stand for biblical values on social issues. If you never want to uh, get taken advantage of, never try to meet the needs of the poor. But you might get taken advantage of. But it wasn't your money anyway. Everything is God's, right? If you seriously follow Christ, you will experience the same kinds of sorrows and frustrations and betrayals and rejections as the Lord you are following. That's the reality of following a crucified and risen Savior. You have to go through Calvary to get to the other side. The way of Jesus is the path of Calvary. Some of us get frustrated with God if we would be honest with ourselves because deep down, whether we can even articulate it or not, many of us sort of build our life on this presupposition that we kind of made some deal with God that if we follow him, things will go kind of at least smoothly for us. But I don't know who told us that. Certainly not Jesus, definitely not the Bible. Will my life be easy if I follow Jesus? No. I live in a world broken by sin. Of course not. Will my life have meaning and purpose? Oh, deeper than you can imagine. Everything becomes of eternal significance. So is following Jesus worth it? Of course. Of course. So the gospel confronts idols, and the reality is we love our idols, don't we? John Calvin said, We're a our heart is a factory for idols. We'll make an idol out of anything. About one o'clock, some idolatry is going to start here. Football, right? Pick, pick your poison. Baseball playoffs, hockey season starting. You can see my idols are sports a little bit. Comfort. Pick whatever you want. We love our idols. And so here's what a confrontation for idolatry could look like. Verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, bar Jesus. So Luke, our author, is now alerting us to the shift in Saul's name to Paul. Saul just became Paul, and it's not going to go back now. Why? Well, Paul was probably his Roman name. That's his Gentile name. And since his missionary ventures are going to now be in the Gentile world, in the Greco-Roman world, it's going to make sense for him to be addressed primarily as Paul from now forward. But it's also really important to note here that Paul is either going to always be mentioned, he's always going to be mentioned either first or alone now, because as we saw last week, Barnabas in his faithfulness and humility is going to take a step back and give the prominence to Paul. He sees what God is doing in Paul, and Paul becomes the team leader. This is a beautiful metaphor for 
passing on the faith and for handing off leadership to the next generation. And so Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, he gives this wizard, this sorcerer, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, right before a boxing match or an MMA fight, a stare down, right? Some of them are pretty epic. That's what's happening here. He is staring down this sorcerer and listen to what he says. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Yikes, right? That does not sound, I'm not telling you to do evangelism like this necessarily. Probably you shouldn't. This doesn't sound very kind. This is intense. He keeps going. Verse 11. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So now we're thinking, Paul, you just like cursed a guy. Not cool. And we, we have to deal with this as the church. Like We can't just like, I wish the Bible was written in pencil. We could just erase it. Oh, it's weird, right? But he knew that the fate of Sergius Paulus' soul is kind of hanging in the balance here. And so Paul, out of, I'm going to say love for Paulus, but also love for not letting Bar-Jesus continue in this wickedness, he wants Paulus to believe. He wants the governor to believe. Remember how harshly and firmly Jesus spoke about those who hinder what he called the little ones from coming to him in Matthew 18. What did Jesus say? He said it'd be better for them if you cause someone weak in the faith to stumble and not hear the gospel. It would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the ocean. Some harsh words from our Lord Jesus. So eternal life is that serious to us. We are passionate about it. And remember, Paul, in this text, really important, if there's some of us that are like, oh, good, this is the excuse I need to talk like this to people, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul is filled with the Spirit. Bar-Jesus is filled with deception. Paul is a child of God here. Bar-Jesus, Paul says, is the son of the devil. Paul is telling everyone he can tell about the one who loves them and who makes sinners into righteous people, and the false prophet is an enemy of all that's right. Paul is announcing the way of salvation. Bar-Jesus is trying to block the path to salvation and pervert it. Instead of advocating real conversion to Jesus, Bar-Jesus is perverting that and, and calling people to himself, likely, in order to gain power and renown. And so as a consequence, God judges Bar-Jesus. This is the same kind of judgment we saw with Ananias and Sapphira in, earlier in the book of Acts. This is pretty fitting that he goes blind for a guy that's a proponent of darkness, of spiritual darkness. Now, when we walk in the Spirit and we live for Jesus on his mission we will face opposition. So expect spiritual warfare when you're doing gospel ministry. Expect it. Don't be surprised at hardships. Don't be shocked that a sinful world is against you. Don't be surprised. Be loving. You're not alone when you face opposition for making the gospel known. What we know is that the God of heaven and earth, Jesus our Lord, is for us. 
which means we don't have to fight back. So don't assume that you're in the wrong when you face opposition. In fact, if you never face any opposition, you might be more in the wrong than when you face some opposition. Many times, opposition indicates that you're exactly where you should be. Now, this is hard for us because some of us like to go looking for trouble. That's our personality. When I say we, I mean me. This, this part of the sermon is for myself. Right? We like to be a little abrasive on purpose. And, oh, well, the Holy Spirit told me to. No, no, that's different. So we got to be discerning as well. And in this case, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, leads these missionaries right into a spiritual war zone much like the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil in Luke 4. And so this passage, like many others in Acts, is going to help us have a framework and an understanding for opposition to the gospel. And it also reminds us that we can speak boldly even in the midst of opposition. Sharing this truth is an act of love. Notice what Paul does not say. Now, now Bar-Jesus has his perspective and I have mine. And we're both, it's both, we're both right, it's fine. No, this is a challenge to you to speak the truth boldly in love, even in the middle of opposition. See, what we know about what Paul said was that as he said it, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the prerequisite for saying these kind of things. So this must mean that Paul said those things, as harsh-sounding as they were, in love for both Paulus, the governor, but also for Bar-Jesus as well. To allow Bar-Jesus to just continue on in his life of darkness unchecked is not love. And before you leave today and decide, I'm going to go, oh, I got the problem. I'm going to say the hard thing to that person at work. You son of the devil, right? Don't do that unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, not only should we expect opposition and should we speak boldly, but we also must undergird all of that by trusting wholeheartedly in the triumphant power of God's word and his spirit. In his commentary in this passage, uh, John Polhill said this, Christianity has nothing to do with the magic superstition of this world. Its power the power of the word and spirit overcomes them all. And it's not lost on me that we're saying that I'm reading that to you in the month of October, right? It's spooky season, Christians. What does that mean for you? Well, it's not for me to be the Holy Spirit for you. It's just for me to lay it before you and let the Holy Spirit do his work. What does that mean for how you deal with our culture in this month, right? Christianity has nothing to do with the magic superstition of this world. It's power but the power of the word and the spirit overcomes them all. John Stott and his comments on this said this, the Holy Spirit overthrew the evil one, the apostle confounded the sorcerer, and the gospel triumphed over the occult. This is amazing. This is power. What an encouragement this can be for us as we live into what Jesus called us to be at the beginning of this book. You are my witnesses. Witnesses of what? Another kingdom. That doesn't work like this one. We are his witnesses. So what does that mean for us? It means we, we strive to maintain a, an, a, an unshakable confidence in the gospel of Jesus and an unshakable confidence in the Holy Spirit's power to overcome 
obstacles and open people's hearts to the gospel. Like if God can redeem Saul, anybody that you know is way easier than that. Trust him. So Luke is going to conclude this section by giving us a report from this encounter, which really should lead us to an incredible amount of confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed. That's a miracle. Right? Understand any time that anybody goes from unbelief to belief, it's a miracle. The fact that you believe is a miracle. Don't pass that up. Then the proconsul believed when he had saw what occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. As we read this story, we read other stories like this in our Bibles, are we confident in the reality that, listen, the same Holy Spirit that you read about in Acts is alive in you, if you know and trust Jesus. That Spirit is in you. And so are you confident in the power of the gospel to break through even the hardest of situations? The situations that drive you nuts, right? Maybe you're thinking of somebody that in, in a little bit of time you're going to be sitting around a Thanksgiving table with, right? You better get filled with the Holy Spirit before you get to that table, right? There's always going to be hindrances. There's always going to be people opposed to the gospel. Listen, Christian, can we just be honest? We are still opposed to the gospel ourselves in our own heart, but we come to him and he overcomes it with his love. There's always going to be those hindrances. There's always going to be persecutions, and there will always be Herods and Bar-Jesuses in our world as well. Maybe not to this level, maybe not to this kind of crazy public confrontation, but they're there. And so the point is this. God makes any of those moments of opposition a place where the gospel can be shown to be all the more powerful. Do you trust in him, and do you trust in his word and his spirit in you? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for these stories from, the, from this book that really just show us what the early church looked like and, and what is and was normal for those who were first believing in you uh, through the gospel of your son, Jesus. And so we thank you for what he has done for us. We thank you that we can gather together in this place. We don't take it for granted that we're able to come and freely sing words about you and your kingdom. We thank you that this moment when we gather together is a little just a little taste of the kingdom that's coming. Would you help our eyes to stay there as we go out in this world like Saul and Barnabas on adventure with you to make all things new in your world? We pray that you would give us power. Holy Spirit, we invite you to continue to fill us and to make us aware of your presence in us. And we pray all this, Jesus, for your glory and by your name. Amen.